Hi, everyone. Uh, this is the Sensible Medicine Podcast, and I'm with my uh, colleague, Adam Sifu, and our normal uh, leader, Vinay Prasad, is, is not with us, so it's just going to be Adam and I. Today, we've got three topics. Uh, first is going to be a randomized controlled trial of a nutrition study to prevent cognitive decline called the MIND study in New England Journal. We're going to talk about the largest component of congestive heart failure, so-called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which we call HEFPEF. And uh, the third topic is going to be this recent controversy uh, in the New York Times um, about uh, peripheral artery procedures to save limbs. So, Adam, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> See uh, if we can do it without our leader here. <laughs> uh, it, it, uh, it'll be different. Let's say that. So... So we, you and I were tweeting back and forth about uh, this study called the MIND, MIND trial, M-I-N-D. And the idea with the MIND trial is that uh, if we use a specific diet, um, we can help prevent cognitive decline and dementia in older persons, which dementia is obviously a really important thing to to. Um, to prevent. So you you started it and I and I responded. So why don't you I mean, why don't you briefly tell us about the study? Sure. Um, so um, the study was and, uh, you know, briefly was a randomized control trial of a nutrition intervention, you know, essentially the DASH diet, um, right, with some additions. Um, and it was a negative trial, uh, I think, not surprisingly, you know, very well done, but a three year trial. Um, looking at cognitive decline. So I think going into it, um, it was hard to imagine there was going to be a positive outcome, right? Um, nutrition trials are incredibly difficult to do. Um, behavioral change is hard. It's hard to get people to stay on um, a diet. It's conceivable that people in the placebo group, so-called placebo group, non-intervention group here, um, might be adopting parts of the DASH diet anyway, because that's a good, healthy diet. Um, three years is, is not a lot of time for follow-up um, uh, to see an outcome like this. Um, and, and in fact, you know, the trial was negative. Um, I tweeted those sort of, you know, kudos to the authors, uh, because we see so few of these trials, um, right? We know the DASH diet. There was the um, Spanish olive oil trial, which was probably a decade ago, um, you know, and now there's this. And, and so I was impressed with it. Um, you like instantaneously called me out and like, and asked me, what the hell? <laughs> you know, why are you impressed with this trial? This trial tells us nothing and was unlikely to tell us anything um, um, to begin with. And I have to admit, you know, I, I defended myself, but I also thought you were right in your comment um well i mean the reason why the reason why i was struck by it is because we the nutrition space well first of all patients always ask about yeah. what, what they should eat and you know what's the best diet i want to do the best diet and of course it's so muddled by these observational studies and that people who eat blueberries or drink coffee or 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 quinoa or whatever um, they do so many other things to to make themselves healthy. And here, here I was impressed with this diet, right? The MIND diet, I copied this, emphasizes consumption of plant-based foods. That's good. Green, green leafy vegetables, nuts, berries, fish, and olive oil. And it limits the uh, intake of foods with saturated fat and sugar, red processed meat, 
uh, whole fat cheese, pastries. They eliminate pastries and fried foods. Now, I mean, it's like the pretty good diet. And yet right, the, right. The, the primary endpoint after three years, this is cognition score was not different. And it really, really wasn't even, I don't even think it was close. Um, the trial went for three years. And, and I guess, I guess I, we should, we should have a talk about what, do we even need to do these trials? I mean, yeah. uh, and, and, and if we are going to say anything about nutrition, I mean, shouldn't we have some systematic study like this, or at least an attempt at this, uh, rather than these completely just biased observational studies? Right. I, I, I think this is such a challenge and it's a challenge to medicine and it's really a challenge to, you know, evidence-based medicine, right? Which, which both of us are, you know, whatever, believers, advocates. Um, because on the one hand, right, I feel like observational trials fail us continuously. And they fail us in this space, not only the small observational trials, right, which show us things, um, you know, like three peppers a week, you know, I don't know, make you live forever and never have dementia or cardiovascular disease. Um, I think the more um, ecological studies, right, which say, look, there's less pancreatic cancer in countries which eat less red meat, probably tell us something. Um, but boy, they are, they are obviously flawed. They're obviously biased. And they're hard to get to really individual diets. And then randomized control trials are just difficult to do, unlikely to really lead us in, in, in clear ways. But if we don't have data, then it just opens this space for a lot of completely wacky recommendations, um, which are based on theories. And you have people either giving up or adding a thousand different things. Um, and I walk around my farmer's market and, you know, there are people who are selling, you know, only vegan, gluten-free, you know, no nightshade foods. And they're right next to, you know, the French baker who's doing a booming business. Yeah. Um, so I'm kind of left here with what I think is common sense, right? Which is very much this diet. Um, I would have said, I don't know, maybe the limiting the whole fat cheese was a little bit severe for me, but everything else makes sense. You know, you're avoiding high processed food. You're eating a lot of good, normal, natural stuff, um, everything in moderation. Um, but I don't know. Am I any better than anybody else by recommending that diet? The, the, the tension in my mind seems to stem from, you know, in, in cardiology, at least, we, we have two kinds of trials. We have trials where everything is controlled, where right. the only thing that's different in these patients is one is getting a placebo and one is getting a drug. And everything is controlled. They're the same. But yet uh, the other kind of trial that we have in cardiology where we study strategies, which is like a diet, yep. right, are these yep. pragmatic trials. And I used to think that we should just do more pragmatic trials. Like everybody ought to be randomized. And then, you know, we have these pragmatic trials. Like like this diet study is really pragmatic, right? You're telling a control yep. group not to eat nuts or to eat, you know, just eat their regular diet, but then they know they're in a trial and it's going to be all contaminated. And, and just like pragmatic trials are so contaminated uh, by all these other things that there's so much noise that when they come out negative, 
I don't know what I don't know what to make of them. I mean, there was a fluorosamide study that was like that, and and it was just so noisy and uh, just like this. So I, 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 I'm I'm sort of changing my view about pragmatic trials. I think maybe if we're going to do trials, we we need to have a little bit more rigor, and 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 that'll affect how we generalize it. But at least we can have an answer for this population. Sure, sure. I mean, maybe two things to say on one thing on what you said and one thing to extend it a little bit. Um, you know, there was a lot of chatter online about the sort of Hawthorne effect of this trial, like how much was people's behavior changed just by being in the study? Um, I'm not sure that was that important, just thinking of my own diet, right? Like I'm, I'm pretty much set with what I eat by this time in my life. And just because I entered a trial and got randomized to a no intervention group, I don't think I'd change anything I do. Um, and that's often how I look at these trials. I could imagine that being important. Well, we know it's important in other trials, um, but I'm, I'm suspicious that it was not terribly important here. Um, I also wonder that maybe, although you know we worry a lot about surrogate endpoints in a lot of spaces, I mean, maybe that's the answer here is that we say, listen, what we can learn about these is like, listen, we know some trials which lower blood pressure you know, we know some trials which lower LDL. These are all surrogate endpoints. They might not be perfect, but maybe that's the best we can do in a trial like this. Right, right. Sorry, I had to I had to keep the dogs out of the room. The uh, yeah, they, <laughs> I thought I, 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 thought thinking, I offended you with the surrogate endpoint. No, I was, well, I was actually thinking the same thing as I was reading my summary of it. And I was like, yeah. the, thinking that at least they measured uh, something real like a right, cognitive right. endpoint, but maybe if they measured CRP levels or yeah. some sort yeah, of yeah. surrogate, we would we would be able to measure something. But then when we got that result, we would know what to make of it. True, true. So, so, so maybe we say, so we have something to go on. We say, let's do these uh, dietary studies in, you know, in very high risk people, right? We're looking at, you know, proven salt-sensitive hypertensive patients and we're lowering blood pressure. Um, so at least we have something to recommend in some groups of patients. And then maybe we extrapolate those and recognize that we're extrapolating at our at our patients' risk. Um, and hopefully just not making people miserable with our recommendations as far as diet. I Great. I think that's a, the, I guess the final thing I would say about this is that New England Journal of Medicine published a randomized controlled trial. That's good. New England Journal of Medicine published a null, a negative, so-called negative randomized trial, and that's good. And of course, most trials will, we ought to have a sort of Bayesian prior that most trials will be negative uh, to begin right. with. So right. I think those are all pr pretty good closing points from, from my right. standpoint. I, I totally agree with that. All right. Second topic. Second topic, later this week, I'm going to give a talk at a at a heart failure, a so-called HEFPEF conference, a heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And as for our general listeners, there's a heart failure where it could, you know, fluid build up because of high pressures in the heart. One cause is the heart doesn't pump enough blood. That's called heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. That's kind of what we grew up in and trained on. But now as people are living longer, 
with more comorbidities such as hypertensive heart disease, uh, obesity, um, uh, valvular heart disease, uh, people can actually develop congestion and high pressures and have a preserved ejection fraction, meaning that the squeeze of the heart is normal, but yet they still have periods. And it turns out that heart failure with preserved ejection fraction is actually the most, most common kind of heart failure. And um, so people are working on therapeutic options, right? And in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, because it's due to one problem, and that is that is a, a problem with squeeze, we have four classes of drugs that have pretty strong proven benefit, but with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, it's really a disease of relaxation, but all, the, all these patients have other problems. It's a more difficult problem to treat. So I wonder, you know, Adam, you do general medicine, you do inpatient medicine, you see older patients. I, mean, I wonder if you just have any general thoughts on this to begin with. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I'm interested to hear you talk about it because I find this a very difficult space. Um, when I think about, uh, you know, HEFPEF, heart failure with pres preserved ejection fraction, for me, it's patients who for all the world look like they're in heart failure, right? They have the classic signs and symptoms. You know, they have edema, they have pulmonary congestion, they have shortness of breath with exertion, sometimes orthopnea, when they lie down, they get short of breath. They wake up during the night short of breath. And, and you're often surprised when you see their echocardiograms and you see that, wow, you know, their heart looks like it's doing a pretty good job. Um, and then the other thing which confuses me is that when you go back to sort of the pathophysiology here, which you described perfectly, um, you know, the problem we think is with sort of filling the heart. And so a lot of blood then backs up into the lungs and the rest of the body. You think about, well, what should work? You know, it should work to make sure that people have the fluid to fill the heart and should make sense that if you slowed down the heart, you know, maybe made the heart, you know, I don't know, beat a little less hard or relax a little better, people would do well. Um, but we don't really have great data on those things that should work, like beta blockers, you know, the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers. And then the confusing thing is that, you know, we always treat these people with diuretics when they're symptomatic and they get better. But in a way, if you're drawing people out and decreasing preload, you'd think that, well, that kind of should make things worse. So that's a confusing space yeah um it, it's so interesting what you said about heart rate because the the idea is that if you if the heart can't relax then you just give it more time to relax right so more time between beats and and beta blockers are commonly used but now in my field there's been some people publishing data that in patients with pacemakers that if you raise the heart rate a little bit, not a lot, but a little bit, then uh, the, you you actually improve the pressure at the end of uh, diastole. Because if you fill for too long, then the, the, the pressure builds up. So that's way preliminary data. But the, your point is well taken that we don't we don't have a lot of uh, great options. And and I I just wanted to. Uh, talk about two, the same drug and two different trials. Right. So it's Valsartan. Everybody knows it as Entresto, but I'm allergic to 
a brand name, so we're going to call it Sacubitril Valsartan. In the Paradigm HF trial, I pulled it up. It's 2014. This was a landmark trial. This was HEF-REF. So this was heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, and it was uh, Sacubitril Valsartan versus Enalapril. The eyes talked along about the, the weaknesses, but when you look at the primary endpoint, it was a majorly positive trial. Uh, death from cardiovascular causes, worsening heart failure, a 20% reduction, p-value less than 0.001. And, you know, it was like a 5% absolute risk reduction. It reduced CV death. So major reduction of uh, cardiovascular outcomes with sacubitril-valsartan and hefref. But the same drug, uh, sacubitril-valsartan, in the Paragon HF trial, uh, which was, and now the comparator was a little different. Valsartan was the comparator, but here the trial uh, uh, has a ratio of 0.87 for CV death and heart failure hospitalization. And uh, the p-value did not meet statistical significance. And, and you can argue about that, but CV death was no different. All-cause death was no different. And it was driven by uh, fewer fewer heart failure hospitalizations. And, and that was a small number of total hospitalizations. So the same drug, with a little bit different comparator has a markedly different effect. And I, and I should, I should throw in because certainly Vinay would be exploding if he was here. Um, you know, one of the major complaints about the paradigm study, the earlier study um, was the comparator was that, you know, maybe an Alapril, you know, was an, I don't know, an insufficient comparator and people were begging for the comparator to be Losartan, which is what we saw in the later Paragon trial. But I think more importantly is, is this was a drug that kind of made sense for HEF-PEF, right? Helps with remodeling, helps with afterload reduction, um, right? You'd expect it to, to be beneficial. And one, one more time, HEF-PEF sort of resists our, um, our interventions. Uh, I, but but I would also, I would agree it, of all of Vinay's points about the comparator, but I could use the same example with the SGLT2 inhibitors <laughs> in the two conditions. Yes. So in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, both DAPA and EMPA uh, have pretty strong reductions in cardiovascular outcomes when you have patients with heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Right. But when you study them in patients with heart failure with preserved or mildly reduced ejection fraction, yeah, they could, there's still maybe a positive effect. Yeah. 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 But it's much, it's a much less, uh, less strong, weaker effect um, right. compared to placebo in, 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 in heart failure with preserved ejection yeah. fraction. I think, I think at the heart of the problem is that in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, there are multiple things going on. Whereas heart, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, there's one pathophysiologic problem, right? It's a weak systolic contraction. But with HEFPEF, you have so many different things going on with the skeletal muscles, with deconditioning, with old age, with, you know, not just, dia not, not just diastolic dysfunction. And it, it really gets to Andrew Foy's point about multimorbidity when there's so many competing causes of outcomes uh, if you have a drug that targets, you know, one thing like an SGLT2 inhibitor or uh, or sacubitril valsartan, um, then it's diff more difficult to make a difference, which gets yeah. to treating older patients in general. Right. 
So, so two questions for you. One, which I guess is sort of rhetoric. I, I mean, should we actually be calling it heart failure? Um, right. I mean, it, it's with 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 hefref, the problem is the heart, right? With hefpef, you know, maybe it looks like heart failure, but the problems with so many things, and that's why our our cardiac focused interventions are not really doing the job. This is um, a, a struggle I have just with that name, but go ahead. What's yeah. And then the second question is is really for you, because I don't know this literature nearly as well as you. Have there been kind of um, creative approaches to pacing these people in different ways um, to see if we can kind of decongest them with playing with how the RV is working, playing with how the LV is working? Okay. Uh, the first topic I think is is really critically important, and it's like an epistemic problem, right? Because we talk <laughs> yeah. with patients... We talk with patients, we tell them that they came in with congestive heart failure. And it's such an awful term, right? Congestive yeah, heart yeah, failure. Yeah, but yeah. but it, it but but it is really kind of like that, right? So yeah, yeah. patients come in, they're short of breath, their neck veins are up, they're yeah. uh they've got roused, their chest x-rays, pulmonary vascular congestion. If you do a no BMP, it's off the charts. You give them diuretic, and the next day they yeah. feel better. So there was, and if you measured their pressure in their left atrium or their wedge or whatever, it would it would be very high. So there is definitely there's definitely that, and it's a you know it is that in the end. But but when you do their echo and their ejection fraction comes back at sixty percent, then it, it's just as a. It, it, I wish we had a better name than yeah. congestive heart failure. But of course, coding has has made it <laughs> has made it difficult to say. I like to say pulmonary vascular congestion and the coders are like, you can't say that. that that's that's meaningless, you know. Yeah. I, I'd love to sort of put out to our listeners, because just sitting here, I can't think of anything. I'd love to come up with an analogy, you know, of a type of patient who comes in um, where clinically they look like one thing, respond to the therapy for that one thing, but then the diagnostic tests actually you know, don't support it. That's sort of what we're doing. Um, yeah. You know, I think about rheumatology and I think of the number of patients who come in, I'm like, huh, this person looks like, you know, they have lupus and you start them on steroids and they get better. Um, but it turns out that's not what they have. You know, there's another related but complicated diagnosis which calls for other therapy. Um, would be an interesting um, article to, to write. Yeah, yeah, it, it's, a, it's such a challenging clinical space. Uh, I, to answer your question about the pacing, it's it is super interesting because I, a couple months ago when the study came out, I spent the whole weekend watching YouTube videos and and uh, third year <laughs> medical student things about those pressure volume loops and yeah yeah and 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 the the issue is that uh, I I think it was the University of Vermont group which has been a a pioneer in uh, conduction system pacing and even bi-V pacing. And so what, what they had is a cohort of patients who had pacemakers that you could turn up the rate and not increase their RV apical pacing. Because if you have a standard pacemaker okay. and you make them pace more, then you create a synchronous beat. But they had, right. they had special pacemakers where they could increase the rate and still maintain a really synchronous con contraction. And what they found is that patients with a little bit higher rate did better. And then in their discussion, 
they cited a very interesting European study, a beta blocker withdrawal study. And what this group did is they had patients with HEFPEF and they basically randomized them to coming off beta blocker, staying on beta blocker. And the patients that came off uh, beta blocker did better. And again, that supports that pressure volume loop because the lower the heart rate, the more time there's filling. And because their heart is stiff, that, that extra volume leads to higher extra pressure and leads to congestion. And I think there's a movement in HEFPEF to, uh, to, to reduce beta blockers. And it's interesting because when you look at the, the seminal trials and you look at table ones, a high percentage of these patients uh, are on beta blockers. So the therapeutic fashion at this moment is to use beta blockers. And, and I've actually been, if there's not a reason to have these patients on beta blockers, I've actually been thinking about taking them off. And I, yeah, yeah. I project, my prediction is that we're going to learn more in the coming uh, three to five years uh, in this space, whether bradycardia is probably a negative for these patients. And yeah. I would never even want to, intimate that we should put pacemakers in older patients yeah. just for their HEFPEF, but uh, we're going to learn more in that space. The other yeah. thing, the final thing I'd say about HEFPEF is there are pretty good studies that show that, every, well, decent studies that show that exercise therapy may actually yes. be very beneficial because of the yes. skeletal muscle, you know, adaptations that occur. And of course, exercise never gets any, you know, nobody brings lunch for, or yeah. gives you pens for exercise therapy. Yeah. So. yeah. Um, you, you know, I, I often make fun of what we teach in the preclinical years about it having, you, you know, no benefit with the actual care. Um, but these are the areas, you know, partially because it's it's about hypothesis generation coming up with research questions. But it really does bring me back to, you know, learning about uh, cardiac muscle and remembering, you know, how special cardiac muscle is, right? That, that it's, it's like programmed to whatever fills the heart, you know, that's what we eject out. Um, and that when you look at those old starling curves that, you know, when people have heart failure, you know, it's a different curve and that's sort of what we're struggling with here. Right. Um, um, it'll be interesting to watch how we make progress on this. And I'm sort of confident that we will. I'm just not sure how. Um, All right. The, the, the third topic is that uh, the New York Times, actually the New York Times really stirred this up. I think yes. it was last Sunday's front page. Yep. Was it yep. on the front? It was on the front page last Sunday. It was. was a big expose about the potential overuse of these outpatient clinics that treat peripheral artery disease, blockages, partial blockages in the lower legs. And the, the three journalists really focused on one particular physician who was doing a, a, a ton of procedures and they interviewed a number of patients who had bad outcomes. So there are a couple of themes in the article. I, I think one theme was that there was a change in reimbursement. And so because of the favorable reimbursement, there were a lot of these outpatient clinics, limb salvage clinics, and doing these peripheral procedures of so-called so roto-rooter. So, so billing and incentives was one. A another theme was uh, 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 bad outcomes uh, in selected patients. And the third theme was that the companies that make the devices that 
they used for these procedures was actually giving loans to doctors to start these outpatient clinics. And it, it really stirred up the Society for Vascular Surgery had comments, so it really stirred up a big conversation. Um, and I, when I, when I read this piece and I'll link to it in the, in the article on, on sensible medicine, I was really struck. It was persuasive and my fast thinking kind of reptile brain, you know, that sees all this overuse was like, oh, these, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. And then uh, the more I thought about it, and then Anish published a really beautiful, um, uh, nuanced piece on his Substack, Anish Koka, which I'd encourage everybody to read. And I'll link to that too, just describing um, the problems with this and the kind of one-sided nature to it. And I, you know, I, I know we talked about it before that you've read the article, you've read Anish's piece, you deal with people with peripheral vascular disease. So uh, what do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think I reacted like you. Like everything about me is programmed to jump on this and say, oh my God, this is an enormous problem. Um, I personally see too much screening per, for peripheral vascular disease, right? Which is not recommended. Um, you know, there's no reason to look for peripheral vascular disease um, unless you're having symptoms. Um, most of our treatment for peripheral vascular disease, honestly, is risk factor modification, you know, smoking cessation, you know, above all statin therapy and exercise, right? It's the tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people who, um, you know, need an intervention. And if you work with a good group of vascular surgeons, they're very much hands off unless, you know, there's limb-threatening ischemia. Um, reading this also, you know, whenever a doctor shows up, in an article because they are an outlier, um, you know there's something wrong with somebody's individual practice, right? Um, you know, one of the great things about medicine is we can we can practice in diverse ways, but when you really are outside the norm, you're probably not doing something right. Um, and I care about this because when I work in the hospital, given where I am, we see a ton of limb loss and people coming in with horrible peripheral vascular disease. And there are times on the service that I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm a civil war doctor or something because I see so many people losing limbs. Um, but I do think, you know, the times was, I don't know, maybe building something up to be more of a problem than it is because this was kind of anecdotal. Like, you know, like there wasn't a lot of data about what's happening everywhere. And maybe it's good because it breeds caution about overuse, um, um, but maybe it was a little bit unfair, not to this one doctor, but to medicine in general. I don't know, is that kind of your your take? Yeah, the t I just pulled the article up and uh, you know, it was, I read it on Saturday in the digital version because yeah. it was up on Twitter. But then when I saw the front page of the New York Times, I mean, there it is on the front page, a poor woman in a wheelchair. And they said, title, they lost their legs, doctors and healthcare giants profited. And um, I don't know, Adam, I, when I read and you know, when I talked to Anish and, and when I uh, saw his Twitter feed and, and then, you know, then finally his post today, really the article was the article was lacking like a denominator so you pick yeah. out these patients with a bad outcome and uh 
and, and then you don't really know the denominator. You know that some patients had a bad outcome. You also know that the medical board, you know, he had to pay a fee, but yeah. uh, pay a fine, but, but it, but he didn't get sanctioned. He didn't lose his license. And I don't know. I, uh, there, there's a tension on the one hand, there's the incentive to do more of these procedures. There are vascular surgeons who beat into my head, John, we don't peripheral peripheral procedures will make patients have less claudication, but it does increase their amputation risk. We're, right. you know, there's that. There is the, you know, the drug or the device company, the industry influence, which is, is, is really just oh, gets my, it just gets my dander up. And, <laughs> but then on the other hand, the other tension is that like your population and, and some of these less, uh, the patient, the people who have less access to care, who, uh, do have a high limb limb loss, and you have outpatient vascular surgery services that maybe provide care that they couldn't get um, uh, from from sort of the normal healthcare. Yeah, apparatus. yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's uh, the- I think I think we maybe we leave it with you know I'm sure there is overuse out there, right? Um, and people shouldn't get screened um, for peripheral vascular disease because we don't we do not do that, that doesn't help anybody. And therapy should be conservative when it should be conservative. And then beyond that, it's hard, it's hard to know what's going on, at least now. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I would just, I just wanna give the, at least the vascular surgeons that I work with and the vascular surgery community, yeah. I mean, a really shout out because I think they're they may be better at medical therapy than cardiology because yeah. you know they run into a patient with claudication pain because of uh, uh, not enough blood to the muscle. Their exercise, exercise, yeah. that yeah. Uh, not smoking, and 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 then also also from a cycling standpoint, uh, walk till it hurts, and then walk a little more. So it's almost yeah. like. It's almost like surviving a bike race, right? Yeah, Ten more pedal yeah. strokes, and yeah. so. But then, but then, I, I hear Anish in my head. You know, Anish's point is claudication is is that's the way you should certainly treat it, and he, and then of course you don't need to screen for it because you can treat it when symptoms arise. But the other thing that Anish will say is that when you have an ulcer or when you have a, a you know a, a limb threatening uh, lesion. That's different than a claudicator, maybe. Right. right, absolutely. And it gets to how, you know, our financing of medicine is so screwed up and why what works in a lot of capitalism doesn't work well here. And often, um, you know, when there's money that creates its own demand and, you know, you get people doing the wrong thing rather than the right thing because of the amount of money that's on the table. Um, but we've we've beat that topic to death in the past. Yes, yes. Um, All right. Well, very good. Um, uh, I think we did okay without our without yeah. our leader and king and monarch. And, <laughs> and anyways, he'll hopefully be back next week. So thanks so much. And and on the sensible medicine uh, uh, Substack, I will have some links and a, a little short paragraph. And tune in, tune in next week. Thanks very much. Thanks, John.